Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And this is Thursday, June 9th, 2016. Tonight we have attorney Patricia Rodriguez returning to give us her views on the application of some new decisions that are bringing us back to the rule of law. How nice. We'll be talking about Ivanova and Keshgar and Mendoza and Boyce, uh, Shiretta or Sieretta, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, and Geiseke. Um, and we'll also be talking about what you can expect from uh, a, a lawyer. But I want to turn the tables just a little bit before Patricia comes on. Everybody's looking for a lawyer who gets it. Uh, by gets it, I guess we mean that somebody who understands that their client is not a deadbeat and that there's, there was something very wrong starting with the so-called closing on the loan and uh, even worse with the uh, foreclosures. In the last couple of weeks, we've made an effort on the blog to tell you how to be an attractive client. It's no secret that there are not enough lawyers around who want to take these cases. Part of the reason is the long intake process. Here are some rules to keep in mind when you're seeking legal representation. First, the lawyer is not a therapist. Of course, he or she wants to know if you've suffered emotional distress, and that will come out over the term of the case. Don't make the interview or phone call so long that the lawyer feels you're going to need a lot of hand-holding. That adds a lot of time to your file, and then you'll be wondering why that lawyer is charging you more fees than they might be charging someone else, or that they don't take the case at all. Have a review, second, have a review and report done by someone who knows how to put the facts together so that a lawyer can quickly determine your status and whether he or she can do something of value for you. We do that here, but there's plenty of people across the country who do various types of reports that whose main value is they put things together in terms of the chain of title and several of the players that are involved. Third, be informed, be well-read, process the information, but don't think you know more than the lawyer does. If you do, you're in the wrong place. What you don't know has filled thousands of volumes of case decisions, statutes, rules, and regulations. A lot of people end up arguing with their lawyers, 
who are trying to tell them that procedurally they can't do what the client wants them to do because of something that's already occurred. To a layman, they think that right makes being right means that you should simply win. To a lawyer, lawyer knows that you don't win all cases, you don't lose all cases, and most of them turn on very close questions of procedure and evidence. Fourth, go to a lawyer as soon as possible. Waiting to the last minute only makes the job harder. I've frequently said that when people call me the day before the sale of their property and they ask what I can do, my answer is let us pray. There's not much we can do. If you've already, fifth, if you've already filed a 200-page complaint, don't think the lawyer is going to read it and don't believe he or she has any interest in hearing about it. Every good lawyer knows their job is to narrow the issues to the ones that are most likely to get the most traction. Sixth, don't expect miracles. The deck is stacked against homeowners, even with the decisions that we will discuss tonight. Seventh, the lawyer doesn't owe you anything. The fact that you have been screwed over by the banks and maybe by some lawyers before doesn't mean that the lawyer that you now want to take your case has any obligation to take your case or to do it for free or to do it on contingency or anything else. It is your case, not theirs. And it costs money to hire a lawyer because lawyers have to pay their bills too. Eighth, choose carefully. If you run through several attorneys, it's very possible that no lawyer is going to take up a case that has been litigated poorly or in which you have ended up in a series of arguments with a series of lawyers about strategy or tactics. And finally, if you don't understand what the lawyer is saying, then ask. If you still don't understand, then the lawyer probably doesn't know how to present the issues well in court, and you might be best off looking for somebody else. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank all of you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call our main number, 202-838-6345, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value to you or for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Patricia Rodriguez has been on the show before. She obtained her uh, law degree, her Juris Doctor from Temple University, and while there, she participated in their national trial team and received exceptional advocacy training from one of the best law school programs in the country. She's previously worked for the Camden Public Defender's Office, the Philadelphia Public Defender's Office, the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, and the Los Angeles Public Defender's Office. She currently uh, and for the past four years has represented a wide range of clients focusing her represent, representation 
on borrowers facing non-judicial foreclosure. Patricia, welcome back. Such a to be here. I'm so glad to have an opportunity to speak again. So, first of all, do you have any comments about my rules? Well, you're spot on on so many levels, and I know we're going to get into some specific questions where I'll have an, an opportunity to talk about some of these specific things that clients do or don't do that are helpful or not helpful, but certainly, you know, get to us as early as possible. Make sure that you trust who you're working with, and I'm just looking forward to talking about these new cases that have come out. Well, let's, let's go to that then. Uh, what's your current take on Ivanova, not just what it says, but how it's being used in court and whether you're getting traction or other people are getting traction with it? I, I want to start by saying, you know, it is a stepping stone and a whole lot of steps that we have to take to get to a place where the borrowers are getting a truly fair opportunity to retain the property and to eliminate a lien that this other entity that is trying to collect it doesn't own. But certainly, I mean, God knows where we would be if Ivanova went the other direction, right? If it had gone the other way, we'd be in a whole lot worse of a situation. So it's incredible that they have said, you know, no matter what, post foreclosure, you have a right to challenge whether this entity has a right to foreclose. And Scarretta went farther and said, and whether or not the assignment is void, that makes it, you know, something that you get to talk about at motion for summary judgment, something you get to talk about at trial. Uh, all of the, you know, Mendoza and Kashgar are going to talk about pre-foreclosure. So I'm eager to see how the court comes out in Kashgar, you know, if they follow the Ivanova, uh, they should come with a positive ruling. And if they don't follow Ivanova and they come with a negative ruling, then it's going to be a, a grandstand fight again there in the California Supreme Court that I think will win it as well. I, I'm hearing from... Uh... Uh, West Coast lawyers, not just California lawyers, that even OVA is having a rippling effect uh, in the, at the trial court level. Uh, not that everybody's changing their mind, but there are a lot more judges that were kind of caught up short with that uh, important ruling from the California Supreme Court. And some of them are getting uh, a stay of proceeding. Some of them are having judges uh, take the case under advisement, whereas before, when you were arguing about void assignment or what, you know anything like that, uh, there was a very dismissive approach. Have you seen that? Well, I think you know to a large degree it has seriously increased clients' expectations, which I understand, but we still have to be very cautious here. Although it is starting to push back. And some courts are starting to realize that the California Supreme Court, the Attorney General's office, is all standing behind the borrowers, and they need to be doing the same. Yet at the same time, we're still dealing with the fact that there, there's a lot of biasm towards the banks and away from the borrower. So I think it is happening in some courtrooms, but I still think that we're educating some judges. And, and so what I'm seeing more is them allowing leave to amend, where you're able to bring in your case again, you know, versus them just outright dismissing it, and versus them sending it on to trial. 
But what I am also seeing is a lot of the defendants are just choosing to answer at this point because they recognize that they could lose this demur, and why even bother with it when they can answer and we can fight about factually whether or not the loan is actually securitized, whether or not it, the chain of title is actually broken. Right. That makes a lot of sense, and that kind of goes with what you said before about that this is one step in a series of many steps towards eventually getting back fully to the rule of law. So when you talk about um, uh, Kashgar for a moment here and um, uh, how that fits in to the general narrative regarding foreclosure defense. Well, certainly. So Ivanova really spoke to the issue of post-foreclosure, and do you have a right to um, challenge who foreclosed on you after it's taken place? And so the defendants and their attorneys have tried to narrow that ruling to only being in that circumstance, except Keshgar is the prime example of pre-foreclosure. And now the Court of Appeals came out with an opinion in Keshgar saying basically that you have no right to challenge the foreclosure and you have no standing, you know, per the fact that you're not a, you know, a third-party beneficiary or someone on the assignment. And so the California Supreme Court has sent Keshkar back to the Court of Appeals and has said, hey, we want you to reevaluate that opinion. That opinion you had that they don't have standing because of the assignment, you should reevaluate that based on what we have said in Ivanova. So, again, I think either they have to come back in favor of the borrower in Keshkar, or I think they will be the next Ivanova at the California Supreme Court level being overturned and sent back for a different opinion. That certainly seems like the message that the Supreme Court is sending to the Court of Appeals. It's interesting here, um, and we've had other guests talk about this, that uh, the even over ruling kind of split the foreclosure process into three, three main pieces. One was post-foreclosure, where clearly that was the even over ruling um, in which they said you can uh, uh, sue for wrongful foreclosure based on a void assignment. And then what, well, and they addressed it in Ivanova, uh, uh, was if the borrower, as you, uh, as you just said, has standing now, I, th I think the borrower always did, um, to challenge a void assignment, then what about during the foreclosure? And that's the second category. And then the third category is before there's any foreclosure, which falls into the category of the preemptive lawsuits that uh, well, they're referring to it as preemptive. And I think what you're saying here is that the instruction to the Keshgar uh, uh, appellate court is you ought to rethink this because if the assignment is void, there's no reason to allow them to proceed. And that kind of dovetails with what I said a long time ago, uh, I guess back in 2007, when I said it looks to me that the uh, non-judicial process may not be unconstitutional um, 
on its face, but in its application, it appears that it's unconstitutional. And by that, I meant that the uh, the ruling that the uh, borrower was not party to these agreements and so forth and had nothing to say about it really takes away a fundamental defense that says you're not my lender, you're not my creditor, why am I even fighting with you? And had the courts really drilled down, I think, on uh, back then on what we know now, and part of it was there was a lot of bad decisions because there was pro se litigants and some lawyers just getting familiar with uh, uh, foreclosure law. It, it appears to me that what we're uh, what what would have happened is that a lot of foreclosures would have been avoided had the banks been forced to show the money trail and not just a self-serving paper trail. So you have any comment on that? Well, I think, you know, ultimately it's just a very complex, you know, issue as towards standing. It's one we've been fighting for so many years that, you know, you got to boil down into the simplest terms. The borrower is being foreclosed on based on a contract that they are claiming entitles this entity to foreclose. So if it is based on that original contract, then you have to go back to those original terms. The original terms of that contract were between the original, you know, the borrower and seemingly this original lender or this alleged original lender, certainly not the entity that's claiming for, to have the right to foreclose now. They're only claiming that right through some assignment, through some assigned beneficial interest. And it's only logical and rational that party A of that original contract would have the same rights and the same uh, ability to challenge the other, you know, the original party that they went into the contract with as they would any entity that's claiming that interest through an assignment. And so seemingly you should have standing to do that all the way along from the very beginning. And I have an instance case where the court ruled, okay, maybe based on current California law, because there's no current notice of default or notice of trustee sale, she doesn't have a wrongful foreclosure claim. But she certainly has a claim under Business and Professions Code violation 17200 in that if the wrong entity and the wrong uh, company is collecting payments or claiming a right to collect payments, then certainly that is an unfair business practice. And seemingly in the unfair business practice, you would be able to get you know, damages, restitution, and you'd be able to get injunctive relief in which the court could restrain and stop the defendants from ever attempting to collect on this debt again, which is equally the same as him stopping them from foreclosing. So I think there is ways to get at this issue even before you get at the issue of foreclosure. Is the right entity even collecting the money? Do they have a right to collect this money and pass it on to somebody else? Do they have a right to collect it on their own behalf? And then the next step is, if they have a right to collect it and you haven't paid it, do they have the right to the deed of trust power of sale clause? Because that's a special thing. Not everybody is entitled to the power of sale clause within the deed of trust. You have to have special standing for that. I think you, you hit, hit it on the head there. And uh, the point that I uh, – 
uh, was meandering around before is that non-judicial foreclosure should not allow a party to win a foreclosure where they could not win it if they had filed it judicially. That's if if that's what's happening, then I think that there's an unconstitutional application of the statute. And that's exactly I, I'm in what absolute agreement with you. Yes, absolutely, 100% agree with that analysis. And it, it, it seemed so obvious to me back then, and I guess I was, even in my advancing years, still idealistic enough to think that it would take the courts a little while, but I never dreamed it would take this long to get to this point uh, at the very beginning. As we got into it a year or two, I, I realized that this was going to be a generational thing, not an annual thing. Um, we're 10 years or more into this already, and from all appearances, the foreclosures are not done yet. We've We've got, by some estimates, at least another $6 million to go, which should not be allowed. You've had these attorney general settlements that have meant nothing because the deal was that the banks were supposed to go back and do a review. Well, they didn't. And the services were supposed to make sure that they actually had, you know, the right information and that the true creditor was being presented and so forth. They agree, the banks agreed to do that knowing full well that they couldn't and wouldn't. So I think that, you know, um, I know that there are a couple of interested parties in high places listening today. My suggestion is that these issues that were originally addressed in the settlements with the Office of the Comptroller, the Attorney General settlements, and even the new FDIC settlement that I just heard about where a bunch of banks are paying the FDIC 180 or 190 million. They probably ought to be paying them 190 billion. But the point is, I think that those settlements were entered into on false pretenses of the banks. And I would encourage those people who are near to the levers of power to consider revisiting that in view of the continuing violations that are current today. It doesn't mean procedurally that everybody uh, who got foreclosed before is going to get some relief if it was 10 years ago. We do have rules about that. But we've got another $6 million to go, and that's another... Uh, 10 or 15 million people going to be displaced and it's also another hit in household wealth that is going to affect the ability of consumers to spend money which in turn is going to have a negative effect on the economy somewhere along the lines and I and you know who I'm talking to out there somewhere along the line you've got to take responsibility for the fact that the slowness of the courts and of other parts of government has contributed to holding back our economy 
and holding back the number of jobs and and wages in our economy. So I'm done with that rant. Um, so, Patricia, um, I don't need you to comment on what I just said. Um, in in Mendoza, Boyce, Geisicki, how do those fit in here? Well, those are all, they're very much so reflections of Kashgar and Ivanova, really a reflection of Ivanova. You know, Mendoza, Boyce, they were all sent down because of Ivanova. They're just at different uh, procedural places. So Kashgar and Mendoza were sent back to the Court of Appeals because they had already issued opinions and they want them to reissue new opinions considering Ivanova. Boyce was sent back down to the lower court because it was in the appeal process. That appeal was dismissed, and it was sent back to the lower court for the lower court to reconsider its ruling on Demur, given Ivanova. Now, with Jezeski and Stirata, that's all in federal court, and that's really them applying what we've seen there in state court in the federal courts. I'm seeing much better rulings now with regards to post-foreclosure and, you know, pre-foreclosure uh, but post-NOD filings in terms of the rulings. Um, so, you know, they're all interplaying with one another. We expect many more decisions to continue to come out. I think the big one that we also have to talk about is, you know, the one that speaks to this issue of um, Satterback, you know, Satterback, whether or not it's void or voidable. Now we've got other opinions that are citing Satterback, and I think that we need to be clear that Satterback is only for the 4th District. It's not the 2nd District. It's not the 5th District or the 6th District. So, you know, we have to be clear on what's controlling, what's persuasive, and that really is going to dictate a lot of, you know, the court's rulings on these various motions. I don't think Satterback will last. I, I think if... I hope not. I mean, well, just using the Ivanova ruling, I mean, what's void is void means that whatever it is is nothing. And Satterback was basically saying that they was they were trying to make something void uh, as voidable. And if it was in fact nothing, if it was void, then it is nothing. There's no ratification process that'll make it something. It would have to be an entirely new agreement or something like that with the borrower. And it seems to me, yeah, and it also seems to me that the case they're relying on in Satterback, that Rahmahad in New York, is very inapplicable. It's not talking about the same circumstances. In that case, it's talking about ministerial tasks. Like, we have to be very clear here. When you're talking about ministerial tasks that can be performed, then certainly very ministerial tasks that are just about the administration of the trust, those are, are you know, very um, – those are the types of things that can be ratified. Those are things that, if not done correctly, make the assignment voidable but not void. So, for instance, if they, you know, again, did something administratively, if they left off a letter, if there was a typo, if there was a typo in one of the endorsements or one of the assignments, then perhaps, you know, that's an administrative ministerial task that can be ratified later. That's vastly different than the substantive issue we are talking about here. We are talking about four endorsements and four assignments so that you have a clear chain of a title from original lender to sponsor, sponsor to depositor, depositor to the trust so that you cannot sell this note on its face value, 
for 100% 10 different times to 10 different trusts. That's what we didn't want to have happening. That's what is happening. That's what has happened. That's why they're making so much money on notes that they never paid for. And so you're talking about a substantive issue here. You're talking about whether or not there were four assignments, four endorsements, and did they get to the custodian who provided them physically to the trustee by closing date. Now, how do we know all of that was supposed to happen? Because it was governed by New York trust law, and, the, and these, these trusts, these securitized trusts, were governed by their own documents, their own pooling and servicing documents. And the pooling and servicing documents clearly list and clearly delineate what is an mis administrative miscellaneous task. And it is not transferring the four endorsements, four assignments to the trustee by the closing date. That is not something that can be done uh, after the fact. That's not something that can be ratified. That's an ultra-violent act that voids the assignment in its entirety and completely kills the trust, meaning that that severs that, their ability, that entity's ability to collect on that debt. I, I completely agree with your take on it, and you know the example that I would give that I think even over the even over court was thinking um, is if I uh, gave somebody a quick claim deed, if I gave a trust a quick claim deed on your property, so I don't own it, but I'm giving them a, a, a deed that says whatever interest I have. Uh, uh, the trust now owns. Well, I have no interest. And I had no right to issue that deed. And if I did, I would be subject to various forms of civil and even criminal prosecution. Now, if the trust, for its own reason, tries to ratify that deed, does that create title? No, of course not. They're ratifying something that doesn't exist. And that's where the Saddleback Court, I think, got it totally wrong. And, uh, and, and your point is well taken as to the case that they cited that, yeah, of course, you can ratify something that did happen where there was a purchase and sale of the uh, a note and mortgage, where there were there was paperwork, and now the paperwork is somehow you know uh, a little defective or screwed up. No, that can be ratified. That's not doesn't even fall necessarily into the voidable character uh, um, category. But if you are dealing with an issue here where you're saying. I hereby assign this loan, this valuable loan worth $500,000 to you, and there was no transaction, which is what all, all paperwork, paper instruments do is they memorialize transactions that actually occurred. If there was no transaction that actually occurred, then the paper's worthless. And the trust can't create something of value out of something that has no value or even existence. And I, I, that's why I think Satterback won't stand in view of Ivanova, because eventually uh, the higher courts are going to say, no, you can't create something 
you can't create voidable out of something that is really void. On the other hand, those people, and I tell people all, uh, all the time about uh, quiet title actions, um, the fact that something is unenforceable does not make it void. And there's been a lot of errors made, uh, and some of it was as a result of some things that I said early on uh, that, I, that I didn't think through. Um, in pursuing quiet title as the magic bullet, um, it's not a magic bullet unless you can show that the original mortgage was void or a deed of trust. And the only way that can be is if there was no transaction between you and the party named on that instrument. Now, if you can prove that, then you've got a case. But you can only prove that through discovery once you bring it up because you don't have that information, the other side does. And that's why I've argued for years now uh, for aggressive discovery, which is where cases are normally won anyway. So uh, before we, uh, I'm glad we have the 45 minutes uh, expanded uh, coverage here. Um, I wanted to talk to you, Patricia, about the issue that I brought up at the beginning of the broadcast, which is uh, the relationship between client and attorney. Organization of information, how do you walk in there, what makes you attractive to a prospective lawyer, and uh, what makes you valuable in the process of your case? Um, well, I'll just leave it at that and ask if you, if you got some general comments, and I, I might have some specific questions. Yes, of course. Um, you know, so as far as our firm is concerned, you know, an ideal client is someone who his expectations are in line with what we can do for them. You know, it's all about expectations. If their expectation is the lien is going to get stripped in its entirety and they're going to walk away without any mortgage at all, that's an un unrealistic expectation. If, on the other hand, they expect for us to be able to name every single entity that could possibly claim an interest in the property and come to some kind of agreement between all the parties as to what's owed, if anything, to who, then that is realistically something we can achieve through a settlement agreement. You can come to terms, you can agree that despite all the things they've done wrong to the chain of title, title we now are saying basically you know a rewritten a new loan this is what's owed who it's owed to and for how much and for how long and so ideally that client you know is someone who's able to turn the problem over to us allow us to work and so they're not too involved because that can be a very difficult client someone who's just constantly you know telling us how to do the work constantly wanting to know exactly what we're doing to achieve the goal and then the other type of really difficult client is the one that, you know, allows us to do our job, but then when we reach out to them to get something from them, because sometimes that's needed, they're non-responsive, you know. So it's very difficult if a client is too involved, and it's very difficult if a client is not involved at all when they're needed to be involved. The ideal client is someone who allows us to do our job, but is very reachable when needed to be reached. 
And, you know, along with all of that, it's important that they stay engaged with the case, you know, that they don't just completely disengage themselves. But on the other hand, it's important that they not get over-engaged. It's fine if the client, you know, reads your blog and sends us information. In fact, I love that. That's wonderful. Because I may not be able to do that every day. But if that same client isn't expecting an immediate response on our, on our analysis and, and our position on that, well, that can be problematic because I might not have an immediate response. I may want 24 hours to digest it. And that's really what I would say, at least for our law firm, is give us 24 to 48 business hours to process your request because you don't want our response too quickly. If our response comes too quickly, it may be wrong. It may be convoluted. I want an opportunity to really review and get prepared for what it is that we're going to discuss so I can give the most fruitful, substantive answer to those questions. I I think that's very well said, and I would add to it that uh, neither Patricia nor I nor many other lawyers that we've had on the show are waiting around for your email or your call. We're in court. We may be in trial for a day or two days. We may need to research a point that you think needs to be looked at, or as Patricia says, we may need to just process it and think about it because, and I'm sure Patricia will tell you the same thing, so, uh, in, in my career, nearing 40 years now of going to court, um, some of my best wins were caused by an insight that my client gave me, or at least gave me the seed for it. Um, so it is important that you do uh, send information or ideas to the lawyer, but don't expect that you're going to be communicating like you're on Facebook, back and forth and back and forth. Uh, Patricia and, and other lawyers uh, have other things to do and do not have time for chit-chat uh, during the, the business day and the business week. Um, so, Patricia, one of the points that I know we were going to discuss uh, tonight, and I want to get to it, is everybody has their own idea about how we want a prospective client to have their information organized. So, from your perspective, what is the information that you want organized when you're interviewing a prospective client? You know, initially I'm really just trying to get an overview of the client situation. So I'm going to ask them kind of to take me through the beginning to the end. So when did you take out the loan? How many payments were made? To who? When did you stop making payments? When was the notice of default recorded? Okay, what happened between now and then? You know, were any bankruptcies filed? Okay, what's happened regarding a notice of trustee sale? I really have to kind of figure out initially where are they in the non-judicial foreclosure process because that dictates to a large degree how quickly we need to respond, what we need to do. And then from there, you know, I'm really looking for a client, like I said, who's going to turn the problem over to me. So I like the client who just dumps it all to me. So someone who can just give me every single piece of paper they've ever had about the problem, and whether it's a copy of the original and they want a copy back, fine, 
And then, you know, it always helps if they can prepare a summary of what's happened, you know, a timeline of what they've gone through in writing. And that's really what we look for from the client. At that point, we take the public record, everything they've given us, and we cross-reference it against a checklist of 40 different things that we sue for. And we look for the best four or five things, and that's what goes into the complaint. When we're doing amended complaints down the road, we may ask for more pointed specific information or when we're doing discovery. But initially, that's what we're looking for you know and in addition to all of that I would say that same ideal client is one that trusts me to do my job and who pays timely someone who makes sure that it's a priority that their attorney is paid first and not last because if I'm left to just focus on that then I don't have to be following up with my accounting department who's following up with them to figure out what's going on and generally speaking, I've found that when a client comes into financial trouble and can't pay the fees, that's when they start to nitpick and they start to really try to act like something's not being done properly on their case so they can feel justified in being late or not paying or asking to not pay. And really, it's just if you pay, you can, we can all focus on making sure that your best interests are being handled even if you're not paying, I'm still focused on that, but I'm simultaneously also focused on the fact that the law firm has to get paid for the services. I think uh, it's worthwhile mentioning on that point, just to piggyback, that I know of a number of lawyers who are adding into their retainer agreement that because the uh, uh, it's a billing situation or it's a monthly situation or whatever it is, if they have to engage in uh, an unusual amount of activity for collection, they have a provision in there that they can charge for the collection process of their staff or the attorney that needs to review the situation. So um, uh, the, uh, the point is you, you don't want to alienate the attorney who is expecting you to do your part, which is provide information and pay for the services, uh, while you're expecting them to be enthusiastic uh, uh, in, in their uh, advocacy of your claims and defenses. The other thing I wanted to raise before we ended the show uh, is that I just came across a case where um, a foreclosure suit was filed here in Florida, and they attached a note and mortgage. Well, there were a bunch of things wrong, but I'll skip over that. The The mortgage, you know, had the, the requisite signatures supposedly on it and all that. And before I looked at it, which was uh, yesterday, um, I found out uh, that they had done discovery and that the response to discovery was, in part, a copy of the mortgage, which, of course, had the requisite signatures on it, except that it wasn't the same mortgage. You could see it just from the formatting, and it wasn't signed in the same way. So they're saying each one was a copy of the actual original when the two of them were entirely different in form and even some of the content looks like it, it, it was different so it's worthwhile uh, uh, to look closely at the documents and that's one of the reasons you conduct discovery because if they're refabricating these documents 
you might well be able to prove it filed. So, Patricia, I want to thank you for coming on board again, and I want to have you back again. Uh, you, as always, have explained things uh, very well, and uh, uh, we'll be back next week um, with another guest, and I hope everybody does well, and go get them. Thank you. Okay, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.